Genesis 50. On the sixth day of creation, God made man in his own image and likeness, and Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden. We may picture the first couple strolling in the cool of the day with the Lord as he instructs them about his creation, as he counsels them concerning their relationship to one another, as he reveals in countless ways the warmth of his love and the resplendent glories of his name. No created being has ever known greater bliss or wonder on this earth than did Adam and Eve in those days. This sinless couple was endowed, think about this, endowed with the spiritual capacity to talk directly and meaningfully to God, without guilt, without shame. And they had the capacity to so love one another they did not even recognize that they were naked. They enjoyed a blissful self-ignorance as their large souls reached out to embrace the wonder of a world untainted by sin and the joy of a face-to-face relationship with their Creator. But then Adam and Eve were tempted to turn inward. You shall be like gods, Satan promised, and heeding his evil counsel, Adam and Eve turned inward for the first time in a new way. They sought fulfillment and meaning in self. And as they did, their once large souls contracted and shriveled, as it were, once oblivious to their own nakedness, once at total ease in the presence of a holy God, once in blissful love with one another, all hinged now on that pinpoint self. And they covered their nakedness. And they hid from the presence of the Lord. And they shifted blame for their sin. Since that day, mankind has sought fulfillment, has sought meaning in self. By nature, we seek satisfaction to our own glory. Satisfaction in our own glory. By nature, we are driven to get our own way in competition with others. By nature, we long for pleasure on our own terms. But we're here to sing songs of thanks, aren't we, today? We sing songs of thanks because thanks be to God, He is in the business of freeing His people from self-idolatry and restoring Eden in our hearts He's in the business of enlarging the restricted borders of self as the source of our soul satisfaction and pointing us to find meaning and satisfaction in Him and hope in His promises. Is God performing that work in your heart this morning? Is He freeing you from your natural idolatry to self? In light of the passage before us today, we would do well, I think, to consider two tests that may serve to help us discern our progress in the sanctifying work of God. Test number one, how do you respond when others hurt you or hinder your personal agenda? 
to the degree that self is the source of your satisfaction, to that degree you will respond with bitterness or fear, anger or depression, revenge or any number of similar sinful responses. Test number two. To what degree do the things and accomplishments of this life dominate your attention? Now follow me on this, but the self, I think, is oriented to the now. The things of this life are all important when self reigns. Recognition and accomplishment in this life are paramount. Self-reliant people are now-oriented people because the self is so small a prison. It lacks in itself the moral capacity to look forward in hope to the promises of God, to trust God in faith for greater joys in the future. Do you taste it? Do you taste that longing for Eden, a freedom from self-worship and self-idolatry to find your joy and your love in God and in others as we seek the Lord in pursuit of this grace? We turn this morning to the last words dealing with the life of Joseph in Genesis 50. And on these two tests, I think that we see that Joseph shines. God has done a work in this man's heart that was remarkable. And we see this fleshed out for us in two distinct accounts in Joseph's life. The first account apparently follows immediately upon the burial of Jacob in Canaan. Notice chapter 49 again in verse 33. When Jacob had finished giving instructions to his sons, he drew his feet up into his bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. There is then the uh, funeral for Jacob in Canaan, his interment there. And then verse 7 of chapter 50, So Joseph went up to bury his father. I'm sorry, we, that, that, that is the next event. And then, following that, verse 14, After burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him to bury his father. So they have buried Jacob, and now they are back in Egypt. But the death of a parent often renders uncertain the relationship between siblings. Joseph's brothers had lived peaceably with him for how long? They had been in Egypt living at peace with him for 17 years. But now that Jacob is dead, they become skittish, and they're worried about how Joseph will relate to them in Jacob's absence. And so the first scene takes place just after Jacob's death, beginning at verse 15 of chapter 50. Verse 15, when Jacob's brothers, Joseph's brothers, saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs he did, we did to him? When they saw, that is, they've been with Joseph to bury their father. There were seven days of mourning. They bury their father. They go all the way back to Egypt. They realize that Jacob's dead. That's not what the word see means here. When they saw that their father was dead, the idea is something along the lines of when the reality of Jacob's death settled down upon them. The journey to Canaan with Joseph to bury their father apparently took up their attention with Jacob and his death. But when they took a good look at the world post-Jacob, the specter of their past crimes against Joseph returned to haunt them again. Now that father is gone, maybe Joseph will take his revenge. The Hebrew could read here at verse 15, all the misery that we dealt out to him. 
Remember all the misery that we dealt out to Joseph. Maybe now he will take revenge. It's not natural for a man to be free of vengeful, vengeful intentions against those who have hurt him. And so the brothers are gripped by fear. What will happen now? Verse 16, so they sent word to Joseph saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. Let's stop there for a moment. This is probably the truth or probably a lie. What do you think? I, I, I think probably, though we can't be for sure, I think probably this is a lie. Jacob has not really said this to send this message on to them. Reasons being, first of all, it's nearly impossible to believe that Jacob would not have communicated this point to Joseph himself. We have just been reading for the last two weeks the last words of Jacob to his sons. He was very clear to instruct them about all that was important to him. The prophecies of chapter 49 and on and on. Joseph had time to listen to Jacob's last words and last concerns, and it seems impossible almost to believe that Jacob would have just forgotten this point somehow or would have been afraid to communicate it with Joseph. Remember, with the blessing of Ephraim over Manasseh, Jacob is even very willing to go against Joseph's will at the end of his life. And so for him to broach this topic that to not to broach it if it was important to him seems almost impossible to believe. Secondly, Jacob would have made such a request because, would not have made such a request, I think, because he trusted the character of his son Joseph. He's been living there in Egypt for 17 years and he's seen the way that his son has treated his, uh, his brothers. He knows what's in Joseph's heart and so there would be no need to ask him to forgive his brothers. We know what God thinks Joseph has forgiven his brothers. I believe that Jacob understood God's perspective. And so there was no reason to request Joseph to forgive his brothers. I think what we have here is probably a lie on the part of his brothers. And it is a ringing confession of their sin. In fact, the Hebrew word for sin here in verse 17 is the Hebrew peshah. It is a strong term indicating brazen rebellion. It is used several times in the Old Testament. We might think of just one example. This is the word that Abigail uses to refer to Nabal when she's talking to David. Forgive my husband's sin. His brazen rebellion. His brazen sin. That is the word that they use here. And notice that they refer to themselves how? Not simply as your brothers, but forgive the sins. At the end of there, verse 17, forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. They appeal to Joseph not as brothers, not according to bloodlines, but they appeal to him according to a common spiritual heritage. We, like you, are servants of God, and we serve a God who forgives. Please forgive our brazen violation of you so many years ago. And then at the end, very end there, verse 17, when their message came to him, Joseph wept. Why did Joseph weep? He has wept several times in relationship to his brothers, all in the context of reconciliation. There's a tenderness of heart in Joseph. I think possibly the best idea that we can set forth, though the text does not explain why he weeps, is that he's grieved that they do not trust him. 
that all he has done to reconcile them, to forgive them, has not been fully understood. Joseph had a large soul. He had genuinely forgiven them, and for 17 years he had cared for his brothers there in Egypt. And yet somehow they missed his love. Somehow they couldn't understand that he was genuine. Here they are doubting him and thinking that he's some type of monster who will turn on them now after all these years and take revenge. Is he just a hypocrite all this time plotting their revenge? In their fearful words, Joseph is again reminded of the ugly consequences of sin and of the reality that the lid had been pulled off this miserable tale once again by Jacob's death. It would all be enough to overcome any godly man. And so Joseph weeps. Then, in yet another act of total humiliation, the brothers respond to Joseph's weeping, not with relief, but with genuine contrition. In other words, they don't just say, Whew, that's good, he's not going to take vengeance against us, we're okay finally, but they respond with absolute humiliation. Verse 18, his brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. Now there is a sense in which forgiveness is sought immediately and it is granted by God immediately. We believe in that truth. It is a doctrinal truth. On the other hand, there is a sense in which forgiveness is a process. We come to terms with our sin over time. We seek the forgiveness of God, but over time, as our actions accord with true repentance, we come to terms and we come to full forgiveness. Our forgiveness may be real in the presence of God, but our sense of it, our understanding of it, and the growth that He intends through it may take time. I think here for these men living alive for so many years and then living, having asked forgiveness, having confessed their sin to Joseph, for 17 years they're still dealing with this wrong. But they're coming to terms with it. They throw themselves down before him for a fourth time. And once again their potential enslavement is considered before the man that they once enslaved. It's a common theme through this whole section. Had Joseph been a man who worshipped self, he would have reacted to their attack on him. But, verse 19, how does he respond? Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Whatever the reason for his weeping, this expresses his spirit. He reaches out to them. Something in his tears is, is saying to us that they don't understand that there is love in his heart and they think that there's nothing but retaliation and evil in his heart. At least they fear that. And so he speaks his true heart when he says, don't be afraid. Now notice this next phrase, verse 19. Am I in the place of God? Am I in the place of God? Taking the place of God is exactly where this book started, isn't it? Fairly close to the beginning of the book of Genesis, we have Adam and Eve doing just that, taking the place of God. But the book ends here with Joseph and indicates the grace of God operating in the godly line. For taking the place of God is what Joseph refuses to do. Taking revenge is what we all naturally desire to do when we are wrong. But God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. 
Deuteronomy 32.35, Romans 12.19. Joseph knows, and so he will submit as God's instrument to accomplish whatever God wants done, but he will not assert himself as God's surrogate. I am not God, and I'm not in the place of God, and vengeance does not belong to me. His vision of God is large, and so he realizes some of the most profound words in the book of Genesis in some respects, and some would argue, at least in this patriarch, uh, patriarchal section, that this may be the overarching theme of the entire section. Chapter 50 and verse 20. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. These are the words of a victim who has been liberated from viewing self as the source of his satisfaction. You intended to harm me. The Hebrew would read, you devised evil against me. You devised evil. The word evil could be translated harm or injury or misery or distress or evil. Was Joseph wronged? Yes, he was, and he acknowledges that. Evil, misery, injury, harm was your intention. But here we witness Joseph's large soul and his clear vision of God. God intended it for good. I ask you the question as you look at this passage, what to what does the word it refer? To what does the word it refer? God intended it for good. There can only be one antecedent there, and that is evil. You committed this evil against me. You intended this wrong. You intended this harm. But God intended it for good. This is not the picture of a God who sits in heaven and is wondering, saying, now what do I do? Look what they've done to Joseph. Now I'm really in a pickle. How do I get out of this bind? What am I going to accomplish? I've got to fight this evil with good. That is not the picture that we gain of God here. By permitting his brothers to sell him into Egypt, God moved to use that very sin to righteous advantage. Joseph's brothers were dead wrong. They sinned, but God all along intended that the sin they committed against their brother would accomplish good in the end. It is this message to which Joseph has been clinging for a long time. And remember back in chapter 45, it might be wise for us to turn there. Chapter 45, as Joseph talks to his brothers, he's in Egypt. This is long before Jacob dies. They have come to him for grain, and he reveals who he is, and he says in 45.5, And now do not be distressed, he says to his brothers, and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Verse 7, But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Suffering? Yes. Sin? Yes. Evil? Yes. Responsible for their sin? Absolutely. But good? Yes. 
The good here was saving Israel, keeping them alive. Remember, there was a promise to Abraham that this nation would grow, that there would be a great offspring. God has to keep this nation alive, and He does. He provides in this most unusual way. He uses these events to save Israel. And secondly, what was the second aspect of the promise to Abraham? That Abraham's people would be a blessing to the nations. And that's exactly what God uses Joseph to accomplish. He keeps not only Israel alive, he keeps Egypt alive and all of the people that flock there for food. God had an intention with the evil that these people were permitted to commit against his will. And so Von Rad puts it this way, even where no man could imagine it, God had all the strings in his hand. So says Joseph, you forced me to leave my father. Now he said it in a much more gracious way than this, but if we just expand it, you forced me to leave my father. You stripped me of my identity. You sold me into a life of slavery. I had no home, no freedom, no roots, no comfort. I was forced to learn another language, stripped of my homeland and culture. You forced me to walk away from all that I knew. You force me across a lonely bridge into the dark. But I want to tell you that when I got on the other side, there was grace there. You pushed me across that bridge for evil. God sent me across that bridge for good. And I want to tell you a secret here. This was not an isolated event. This is how God's universe works. We must understand that no sinner ever schemes alone. No sinner ever has the last word. This universe is run by a sovereign God who employs all things to accomplish good ends, as Romans 8.28 makes so clear. Ephesians 1 and verse 11, He who works all things according to the counsel of His will. And have we not been given this information from the very start of the book of Genesis? Remember Genesis 3.15, there will be a mortal combat between God's people and between the people of Satan. There will be mortal combat, and through that combat will come a deliverer who will defeat Satan and who will defeat sin. God knows that this is a world of combat, a world of sin, a world where people do wrong, but he uses it to accomplish good ends. If you remain tied to self, this goes right in one ear and out the other. It does not land upon your soul, and it doesn't change your life. If you remain tied to self as the source of your satisfaction, you will see the wrong others do to you as an assault on your ultimate well-being. It will not only be a personal offense, it will be an assault on your well-being. You will see people who hurt you as final impediments to soul satisfaction. You will see those who hinder your personal agenda as enemies to be viciously attacked and bitterly hated or irrationally feared. Self is a very vulnerable God. 
It sits precariously on the ledge of destruction, and it is therefore very susceptible to attack, and it requires our vigilant protection against every onslaught all the time. I must protect self. It's a small God. We were not created to live like that. And you know it's in you, and I know it is in me. It is by nature for us to have this self-protecting focus. That's not how God made us. We have been created in Christ to have a larger source of joy. The believer who is freed from such self-idolatry rests in God, and so his soul is at rest no matter what winds blow. We see such spiritual maturity in Joseph. He is a man at peace with God. And so he naturally seeks to be a man at peace with man. Verse 21, So then, don't be afraid, he says to his brothers. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. I will, let's take a few phrases here just briefly. I will provide. That means everything is going to go on as it has. I've been providing for you for 17 years here in Egypt. I'm going to continue to do so. I love you. I have forgiven you. It then, the Hebrew text then reads, then he consoled or comforted them and he spoke to the heart of them. That phrase is an idiom, to speak to the heart of someone, means it is usually used in contexts where there is danger or guilt in the atmosphere. So it means that Joseph allays their fears. He speaks kind, supportive words of reassurance to them. And we see again the foreshadowing. Do you see it? Here is Joseph speaking words of kindness and comfort and forgiveness to those who have wronged him, to Israel. It reminds us of Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10 where Israel will look on the one they have pierced and will mourn for him. And what words do we hear from the Messiah who is crucified by Israel as they mourn for the one that they've crucified? Isaiah 40, verses 1 and 2. Comfort. Comfort, my people, says God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for. In this event, Joseph forgiving and comforting and showing gentleness toward his brothers illustrates and foreshadows the forgiveness of God to us in Jesus Christ as he takes the sinner and says, I forgive. And as Jesus, as Messiah, will someday do for Israel. That is Act 1. And we see in it a man of large soul. A man who trusts the providence of God and who does not protect self at all cost. There's a bridge now at verse 22 into a second event. Verse 22 reads, Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all his father's family. He lived 110 years. Joseph was 56 when Jacob died, so Joseph lived another 54 years in Egypt after his father's death. If, as it appears, the events of verses 15 through 21 take place right after the return to Egypt from Jacob's burial in Canaan, then we have a 54-year gap 
between verse 21 and what follows here through the remainder of the book. So they're two very separate scenes. It's, it's really unimaginable to make any sense of the text to say that this situation between uh, Joseph and his brothers took place some 20, 30, 40 years after Jacob's burial. Obviously, this was an issue that was on their heart because of their father's death. So we have a significant gap of time here. It's bridged beautifully by this uh, transitional phrase here in verse 22. They stayed in Egypt, and Joseph lived 110 years. 17 years in Canaan, 93 years in Egypt. That would be 80 years from the time that he was made prime minister of Egypt, though we don't know how long he fulfilled those duties. He certainly was a man of great honor and prestige in Egypt for a very long time. 93 years there and 80 in prominence. This second act comes just before Joseph's death. So we have an act at the end, right after Jacob's death and now just before Joseph's death. Verse 23, And he saw the third generation of Ephraim's children. Also the children of Machir, son of Manasseh, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. I should have made those comments after this. Obviously, this is dealing with those 54 years and then some on the other side of Jacob's death. This is talking about life in Egypt. And what do you see there as there's reference here to his children? What do you see? Does the theme come out to you? You see it again. The promise of land and the promise of what? Of offspring. Here is the promise of God being fulfilled. Children are being born in Egypt. Israel is growing. And the house of Joseph is growing. Macher is placed on his knee. That's an idiomatic phrase meaning that he was adopted. Just much like Ephraim and Manasseh were adopted by Jacob. We don't know why, but for some reason Joseph chooses this son, this grandson rather, and he adopts him. Uh, and we do know that this becomes a very important clan in Manasseh, even standing for the whole tribe at times, the phrase Machir. Uh, but at any rate, there are children that are being born. Now, verse 24, as we move to the very end of Joseph's life, Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die. But God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. His brothers, we don't know exactly the meaning of that phrase. Perhaps all 11 of his brothers survived him. We don't know. Uh, perhaps it's a reference to broader uh, family or relatives, but it, it appears to be referring to at least some of the 11 brothers that survived him. He speaks to them, and what does he promise them? Jacob dies prophetically, looking in blessing upon all of his sons. Joseph here dies also with a prophetic vision. It takes us back when he says that God will come to your aid. That's a hard word to translate from the Hebrew, but the point is clear. It takes us back to where? Back to chapter 15, verses 13 to 15. There in that passage, God prophesies to Abraham that you will be in another land for 400 years, but I will come and I will visit you. And Joseph says, God will visit you. What's he doing? What is he saying? He's trusting the promises of God. He is holding true to what God has said. He knows that it will come to pass in the future. He says God will come and visit you. This very same Hebrew word is used in the book of Exodus chapter 4 where it speaks of God seeing the suffering of the slaves 
of Israel as slaves in Egypt. So Joseph's last request obviously parallels that of his father in chapter 49, verses 29 to 32. He identifies with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob just as Jacob had identified with Abraham and Isaac. He asked just as his father had to be buried in the land of Canaan. And so what does he do? He shuns the honor of Egypt. He shuns the wealth and the prestige of this great land. And he says, bury me in Canaan. It's interesting here that for the first time in the book of Genesis among these patriarchs, that Joseph does not receive special revelation from God about the land. Abraham had received special revelation. This land will be yours. Jacob, Isaac had and Jacob had as well. But not Joseph. Joseph is more like us in this respect. We receive the promises of God from others who have gone before us and left us the divine record of revelation. Joseph depends on that record of revelation and says, God will take us to Canaan. But the important point is that Joseph believed God's promise. That's what we must get here. As Hebrews 11.22 makes clear, By faith Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions about his bones. Think about how, long, how old is our nation Think of this, 400 years, Joseph was in a coffin in Egypt. We read verse 26, So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. God's sweet, unusual providence. He's in a land that preserves bodies for 3,000 years. They've got to preserve bodies for 3,000 years in Egypt because that's when the Spirit comes back to re-inhabit the body they taught. He's in this land where they preserve bodies for 3,000 years. They put him in what apparently by this word is, would, would appear to be a uh, stone coffin, perhaps wood, but probably a stone coffin. And he is, as we say it these days, on ice waiting for God to come 400 years later. In fact, Joseph's faith on this occasion provided an ongoing inspiration to his people for centuries to come. Moses didn't forget about Joseph's coffin on the night that the Israelites fled from Egypt. That was a busy night. It was a frightening night. It was very intense. They didn't forget Joseph's coffin. Somebody put that coffin on their back or on a cart or something in some way. They got it out of Egypt. They took it with them because it was a symbol that God had promised them the land. And though it had been 400 years, there Father, Joseph, had spoken, and his faith was still intact 400 years later. They took him back, his bones, to bury at Shechem. Shechem, where that man had appeared, it seemed, out of nowhere, had come to him and told him that his brothers had gone north to Dothan. That tip that Joseph followed and was then sold into slavery, at that Shechem, Joseph is buried 400 years later. But in the desert, it's kind of an interesting thought. In the desert, eventually, as the Israelites made their way to Palestine, there were two arks. The Hebrew word for coffin here is the same Hebrew word translated ark of the covenant. 
There were two arcs, so to speak, two boxes. One, there was a body. In the other, there were the Ten Commandments, there were the, 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 uh, the, the law that God had written on Mount Sinai, and they placed those in that box. And later, Jewish rabbis, it's probably a fanciful story, but it, it, it's interesting to consider. They claim that the Bedouins watching the Israelites working their way toward Palestine asked about these two boxes and why the dead would be carried next to the living. And the Jews explained that the man enshrined in the one fulfilled the commandments enshrined in the other. Well, that may not have actually happened, of course, but it does illustrate a point. Because, in fact, Joseph did fulfill the commands of the law long before they were actually encoded, emblazoned on stone tablets by the finger of God. Joseph lived for God. And in a sense, Joseph pointed ahead to a greater fulfillment when the lion of the tribe of Judah would fulfill the law of Moses, be enshrined in a stone tomb for three days, and rise again in victory over sin and hell. There is here in verse 26 a redemption theme that is begun, pointing us to Christ as deliverer. Where does the book end? It ends with that word, Egypt. Israel is in Egypt, and it sets God's plan in line to redeem Israel from Egypt, illustrating the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ who leads us out of the land of sin and misery and death and provides for us forgiveness of sin. As we consider these thoughts, we come back to these two tests. Test one, how do you respond when others hurt you or hinder your personal agenda? Joseph's response, you meant it for evil. He did not pretend sin away. He acknowledged that it was painful, painful to him. You meant to bring me misery. But Joseph could also say, but God meant it for good. And Christian, you can and you must say the same thing. To the degree that self is the source of your satisfaction, you'll never be able to say that. Because as others attack and hinder, cause difficulty to our self agenda, and challenge self as the source of our satisfaction, or even hinder it from being realized, if that's the case, the only proper response is bitterness or fear or anger or depression or revenge or some other type of sinful response because our little God has been attacked, has tottered on the shelf, and has fallen and broken. And so our life is left in pieces, in shards, our little God has been touched. Joseph was closer to Adam than that. He was closer than, to Eden than that. He looked out to a large God, and he could say with confidence, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And I trust in that. Perhaps you even fit in the brother's shoes. 
we all have at times. And even those of us who have sinned, all of us have, as we have sinned against others and harmed others, we need to come to terms in the same way with the same truth. That God intended it for good. That doesn't make it good. It does not mean that a person has not suffered. It does not mean there's not place for forgiveness and compassion and perhaps for repentance. But it does mean that it doesn't rest on me. Do you hear the phrase in contemporary Christian circles so often? God has forgiven, but I can't forgive myself. Why, where does that language come from? I can tell you it doesn't come out of this book. You'll search from cover to cover to find anything about us forgiving ourselves. Where it comes from is from the modern soul that is so small that it finds satisfaction in self alone. And so it believes that if I have done wrong, my world is shattered and it's over. The only way that we come to that is if we have lost sight of a glorious and big God who forgives all of our sins as we come to repentance and who uses even our evil for good. Now, if we would take that, as some did, in the, even in biblical times, and take that and run with it and say, well, therefore, let's do evil so that grace may abound. What does Paul say? God forbid. If you know a God who forgives in that way, you don't have any desire to test his mercies. You have a desire to love him and embrace him. How do you respond when others hurt you? Secondly, to what degree do the things and accomplishments of this life dominate your attention? Think about the man penning, writing this account. Like Joseph, Moses did not esteem the riches of Egypt something to be held on to at any cost. From historical understanding, Moses was a great military leader, and he, too, had an inner connection to the Pharaoh of Egypt. But Moses, like Joseph, took the riches and the things and the prosperity of this life, and he let it all go and said, my hope will not be centered here in this life. My hope will be centered in, the, in, the, in faith in the promises of God. He trusted the providence of God. He trusted in faith that God would fulfill His word. And he looked beyond this life to the life to come. May we do the same. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, we sense the battle for our souls. I sense it within me. I thank you for the progress that has been made in our lives, but we also sense that there is a great battle. May we not turn our satisfaction upon our own self but may we release our satisfaction in your direction to seek in you and in your face the joys that are 
at your right hand forevermore. God, I pray that you will give us large souls that cling not to this life, but in faith to our relationship with you that will be fulfilled in the next life. I ask, God, that you will help us to be different people who are holy, distinctive from this world that is so centered on self and so desperately needy and empty. God, fill us with your truth. Turn us away from self-idolatry and, and teach us the path of dependence upon you and of love for one another. May we have the heart of Joseph that knows how to weep, that knows how to forgive, that knows how to send comforting words, and that rises far above the petty differences and the vengeful spirit and the selfish interests of godless people. God, I pray in your mercy and grace that we trust your hand. We struggle to do that. May we remember that we are battling what Adam and Eve did in the garden. To be like God. To take your place. But I pray that we with Joseph would say, I will not do so. That we will allow you to be God. And that we will see you enthroned on our hearts and not self. I pray, God, to this end that you will do this work among us and in us. And for anyone, Lord, that is lost and dying in the confines of self-interest and self-hope, that you will bring them to the glorious freedom that comes through Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection. In that gospel, may you point people away from their idolatries, and point anyone that does not know you now as Savior to a saving relationship with Christ. This is our prayer. We, we ask to this end that you would be glorified in the name of Christ. Amen.